I think uh, innovation, there's a, there's a lot of like uh, creative ignorance, I would say, um, that is necessary for innovation. Because yeah. if you if you have all the marbles lining up, if you know every single thing, um, then it's hard to think outside of the box. But if you're going there from an approach of, okay, like, you know, this, this is a problem, this isn't really working. I don't really know everything. There's some things I'm ignorant about, and that's good, right? Like when you approach like an innovative process, it's important to go there with an open mind. And I think, you know, Microsoft was graceful enough to, to kind of see that in me and say, hey, like, um, you know, that, that's something we should explore. Hi everyone, welcome to Design Drives, where we interview the most forward-thinking designers and most innovative creators on the planet to inspire and help you to reach your full creator potential. In the episode, I chat with Teslim Alabi, lead designer at Netflix and founder of Leads by Design, who also worked at Microsoft before. During the episode, I chat with him about his background as a designer coming from Nigeria and how he used a yes mindset to gain opportunities and get ahead in his career as a designer, but also how he uses his background and passion for diversity to make organizations more customer-centric. We actually learn how you actually sell the idea of diversity internally. Secondly, we also learn about designing at Netflix and what makes the design culture special, but also what lies ahead uh, for designers working in the entertainment space. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, I'm here with Teslim Alabi. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Yeah, really looking forward to the conversation with you. Um, so you are lead designer at Netflix and then you're also the founder of Leads by Design. And when it comes to uh, both of these roles, we're going to learn a little bit more in the next uh, one hour uh, what this is going to be about. Um, you also have a lot of experience working in different organizations, tech organizations. Uh, what we're going to do in the episode, we're going to look into the future of the entertainment space, the role of design within the entertainment space. And we're also going to focus on diversity and inclusion, a topic that you are very passionate about and have a lot of experience in and um, you know, what it means for the design industry. So i uh, really looking forward to that. What would be really great for the audience, uh, Teslim, if you could give them a bit more context about your journey. Um, you have uh, actually quite interesting story and, and background, actually not growing up in the US directly, but uh, moving there. So I think that would be really great how it started out for you um, as a designer and uh, what did you do in the last years? Yeah. Um, so my journey is, like you said, it's really interesting. It's non-traditional. Um, so I, I grew up in, in Nigeria. Um, I'm from Nigeria. I was born and raised there. Mm -hmm. um, and I grew up uh, to a very, you know, we were, we were good, weren't um, all, all, all that there. Um, we did have enough. My parents had enough to send us to school. So that was great. Um, but I think the great thing about my childhood was um, my parents just being really open to me exploring like different creative fields and really encouraging that passion um, while, when I was young. So, you know, for example, I was able to, you know, paint, I was able to write uh, creative poetry, I was able to do music and all these things. Like if you think about like the African context or just like, you know, Nigerian homes in general, like there's this trope about Nigerian parents, you know, encouraging your, like forcing their children to do like, if it's not medicine, it has to be engineering or some other kind of like, um, you know, field with, with, um, with um, prestige. Um, but my parents were very chill. They really encouraged me to go after the things that, you know, brought me joy. And all through my childhood, I kind of did that. Um, so 
fast forward when I when it was time to go to university, I went to university in Nigeria for my my bachelor's, and um, my parents, you know, were open to anything I wanted to do. At the time, I wanted to do medicine, which is interesting. I still kind of fell back into that um, trope of wanting to do something with prestige, um, but then I realized I didn't want to spend that much time in school, so. I decided to do computer science instead. I had, you know, taken interest in computers. I was doing graphics and computers at the time. I was working with clients, even though I didn't really think about it as a as a career option. Um, I was just doing it, you know, for friends, doing graphics um, on the computer and all of that. So I decided, mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to do computer science. Dove into computer science, did it for four years, graduated, and realized I didn't want to code for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, I kind of, I was like, okay, what, what would be the next step if I'm not going to do computer science? Like, what do I do next? So that's when I started to reflect on, you know, my childhood and the things that really brought me joy. You know, I was painting, I was drawing, I was doing all these like really creative things. And I said, okay, like the next step is going to be a combination of like my technical knowledge and, you know, from computer science and something more creative. Mm-hmm. So I started researching on, um, you know, like what combines computer science and creative arts. And, you know, I started to look for courses or master's programs that did that. Um, and I found one uh, digital media. Um, this mm-hmm. was in, in Drexel University um, in the U.S. And, you know, digital media was essentially game design, animation, um, graphic design. They essentially expose you to the whole slate of of you know creative arts and technology mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and that was really awesome because that was actually the first time i got to experience the design process um, or the traditional design process you know of, of um discover um you know build test iterate um yeah that kind of, and research right um mm-hmm. so that was really interesting because you know i've been doing all these creative things but I, there wasn't really a lot of process like design or or creativity was art to me, it was like serendipitous. And I didn't really know that people actually had process around it. So that was interesting. You know, so I went to, you know, left the Nigeria, came to the US for my master's and, you know, was doing digital media. I was enjoying game design at the time. I thought I wanted to do games. And then, you know, as an international student, you come to the US, you have, you know, a ticking clock. If you want to stay, you have to find a job, you have to get experience. So I, you know, towards the last year of my of my master's, I started to look for jobs on campus. And that's when I someone referred me to a job to come design a website. So I was like, you know, sure, I've designed websites in the past. I could probably just use Squarespace or something. Um, and then I got to the interview and it was, oh, no, we actually want to design a full app, mobile and web. And we want to, this is like, it's supposed to collect data, analyze like huge sets of data, do all these really complex things. And I wasn't really Mm -hmm. familiar with that, but I knew I didn't really have a choice, right? Like, it's like, I probably knew that was probably going to be the only job I was going to get because I didn't really have like a lot of professional experience at the time. Um, So I, they were like, yeah, can you do the job? And I said, yes, I can do the job. And then I took the job and then went back and started searching like, how do you actually build an app? How do you build software? How do you design, you know, tools and all of that? And that's when I found out, oh, like, there's actually UI UX design. Um, there are actually people that focus on the experience. There are people that design and build the software. There are people that manage that process, you know, the product managers. And that really opened me up. And, you know, you might say, hey, like, you know, you studied computer science. How didn't you know this? 
well, you know, you could potentially go through school and school doesn't necessarily go through you. So let's just leave it at that. So that's that's how it was for me. But that was a huge um, revolution to me at the, at the time uh, where I got to learn about like, you know, UI, UX and a lot of the skills because I had done a lot of creative exploration, graphic design, all these really creative things. It was a very, very easy transition for me. So I kind of, for that app, you know, I took the job, focused on building that, focused on the, the UI, UX part of it hired a software engineer. We built that. Mm-hmm. Uh, to cut the long story short, you know, I built that app while working on, you know, kind of improving my, my knowledge around product design and UI UX. I hired a developer um, and then built out my portfolio through that app, added a couple more projects, I started interviewing. Uh, luckily, I got, I was able to find ways to get my portfolio in front of people at Microsoft and Google. Um, you know, the interesting thing is that like uh, my last week of um, you know my graduation week I actually flew out to Redmond and Silicon Valley uh, for like a Microsoft and Google interview and then flew back for my graduation so it was just really crazy like I'm really quick how I went from not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life to interviewing with two of the companies I really wanted to work for and then mm-hmm. ending up um, at Microsoft for, for five years yep so that's been a, a short version of my journey but um, you know if you want to if you want to dive into any of that uh, happy to yeah, and I think it's interesting. I think after that, there are a couple of things that happened. Uh, mm-hmm. I think yeah. you found a way uh, to create a voice for people um, uh, that are underrepresented in the design industry, I think, which we could look into a little bit. And um, as well as I think you are now recent role after Microsoft moving to Netflix. I think what is really powerful also about your your story, just to pick one of the things, is that you you when you when you got that opportunity of this role that you were interviewing for, you there, there were probably a hundred reasons you could say no, right? Yes. And they were probably dominating, yeah? But you found a way to say yes, right? And just making it work and just sort of like lean forward, just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to try it out. I'm just going to pick it up. And I think that's so powerful because I think I think very often, I think, you know, p- people find so easy when they're fearing something, they find so many reasons why, why not, right? And why it's not perfect and why, why we shouldn't do it. And and I think you you had that opposite approach where you were just leaning forward and and, and basically say yeah I'm, uh, you find reasons for yes and just gonna go ahead and and do it so that's powerful yeah. yeah yeah thank you so what did you do at Microsoft and what were your learnings then uh, during your time uh, working at Microsoft after your graduation yeah yeah so at Microsoft um, I was hired to my first project was um, a time so I was working on the Outlook team. Um, so Outlook, you know, the, the mail and calendar app, mm-hmm. I was focused mostly on the time management side, so the calendar um, side of mm-hmm. the equation. And um, at Outlook, my first project was to work on a time management app for students, um, because mm-hmm. I think the problem at the time with Microsoft or, you know, the, the, some of the challenges we were, we were facing at the time was, um, you know, how do we attract a newer generation of users because if you think about the Microsoft ecosystem it's a lot of mm-hmm. corporate users it's a lot of corporations um, you know really older people that you know had used some of our tools for years and even decades um, so the challenge was okay how do we ap- appeal to millennials and gen z and people that are just entering into the workforce um, because i think there was some learnings around like hey like if we continue to lean into our current demographic 
they're eventually going to retire and leave the workforce and potentially have no need for our tools. But if we're able to target, you know, the younger generation, you know, people that are just coming up, appeal to them while they're still in university, we could potentially, you know, leverage that relationship as they get into the workforce. So, you know, the challenge was how do you design a time management solution for, um, you know, students and not just a time management solution, but a whole life communication and time tracking and organizational tool for the younger generation of students. So um, it took a lot of like, you know, research. We did a lot of trips to universities. We talked to a lot of students, uh, younger people, trying to figure out like their time management habits and how different they are from, you know, like people that might be professionals. And there were a lot of learnings there, um, you know, like at the time, Snapchat was, you know, huge, mm-hmm. um, Instagram too as well. So it's like, how do we create tools that, command the same level of attention or maybe not the same level but a similar level of attention um, in the minds of these people and you know for me like coming out of school at the time you know i also it's very funny because like during my interview at microsoft you know and you know looking back it was probably a very stupid thing but i got there and they were asking me about like my time management habits and, you know, I'm very, I was terrible at the time with like email and calendar. I didn't really use a calendar. Um, I, I didn't really have like a system of tracking like my, my life. Um, I was a student, so it was just school that was in my head. And, um, you know, I had like a terrible, ter- I still have terrible mailbox habits, but, um, you know, my, I don't have zero inbox, none of that. I don't organize my email or clean it up. When you're interviewing with the Outlook team, you probably don't want to say, hey, like, I don't care about time management or, or email, but I did. Um, and, you know, that was the risk. But I think it also kind of appealed and, and told them that, hey, like, you know, I'm, I'm essentially the kind of person you're looking for. There's a reason why these tools don't work for me. Um, so maybe you want to listen to what I have to say. Right. Um, maybe you want to learn, like, you know, why people in my generation aren't necessarily using these tools. Yeah, I, I, just to add, I think, you know, I, I think it's funny that you, you know, I mean, you interviewed there, you know, sort of as the first show after graduation, but it basically makes total sense that they hired a stu- like a student for this, yes. right? If they want to, yes. it doesn't make sense to hire like, you know, someone that's like very senior for this because they wanted yes. to approach these new people. And, you know, I think yes. it's interesting. You mentioned this convenience factor. I think that also the other solution had. And uh, I think that's the, the chance there is that, that, you know, n- not knowing at all uh, is an advantage for innovation, right? Yes. And I think th- I think you brought this with you because yes. uh, you had just a different mindset. Uh, yes. But um, yeah, sort of interrupting you. Just, no worries, yeah. no worries. Yes, no, absolutely. I think uh, innovation, there's a, there's a lot of like uh, creative ignorance, I would say, um, that is necessary for innovation because yeah. if you if you have all the marbles lining up, if you know every single thing, um, then it's hard to think outside of the box. But if you're going there from an approach of, okay, like, you know, this, this is a problem. This isn't really working. I don't really know everything. There are some things I'm ignorant about and that's good, right? Like when you approach like an innovative process, it's important to go there with an open mind. And I think, you know, Microsoft was graceful enough to, to kind of see that in me and say, Hey, like, um, you know, that, that's something we should explore. So, you know, I went in there, we worked on the app. Uh, it was a really fun project, um, really, really great because, mm-hmm. you know, we could take a lot of creative liberty um, to create this really fun, engaging, um, you know, nice looking uh, piece of software. And, you know, um, eventually the plan was to launch that app globally, but, you know, there were some changes in the company and we decided to pivot. Uh, but what happened was we took a lot of the learnings that we had from that app. You know, we some high-level ones where, like, you know, people love to combine 
um, their tasks and their calendar. Like they think about, you know, tasks, to-do lists and, you know, time management, like actual calendar blocks in the mm -hmm. same manner, right? So like imagine creating a single view for those or creating a system where like, you know, people could switch between both or, you know, you know, drag a task to a calendar, all of that. Um, so that was, we took a lot of the interesting learnings from that project and then brought into into the core outlook project. And I think, you know, even though we didn't launch, um, we didn't have like a global launch, um, a lot of the newer features you're seeing in Outlook was based on some of the work we did um, years ago. Um, so that was a fun project. And then I transitioned from that one to working on the core outlook time management team. And I worked on a lot of um, you know big um, projects there. Um, the thing about Outlook is there's a lot of scale. So like if you think about the amount of users on Outlook on the Windows platform and on Outlook, it's a lot of people. So when you're designing for Outlook, you're having to think about like several different kinds of users. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So typically we have our um, professional users, people that use Outlook in the context of work. And then we have um, people that might use Outlook you know, outside of work, same way you might use Gmail. Um, so like when you're designing features, I think the old Microsoft would focus on, you know, the people that are obviously paying, the people that are, you know, professionals using it in the context of work. And then we end up creating these really complex systems, right? And then someone that's coming from Gmail is like, what the hell is this? This is a lot. This is very complex. But like we're optimizing for the people that, you know, have a lot of experience using the tools. But I think there's a shift and very positive shift in Microsoft's um, thinking, which is, we want to design systems that can appeal to both sides. Simple enough, simplicity was a very huge factor while I was there. So like we want to design systems that are simple, but can also adapt and scale to any kind of user. So we don't have to have like several different kinds of experiences. We can create a unified experience and then have that adapt to different kinds of users. So that I worked on, you know, things like the meeting form, you know, where you go to create your meetings, redesign that, saw a lot of positive impact on the product uh, because of that. And then, um, you know, worked on a couple of different, several different um, time management solutions. And then the last thing I worked on at Microsoft was um, Spaces, a project that I co-founded. And that was a, an innovation project, zero to one. And uh, it was very interesting, probably one of the best um, experiences of my life. Um, it was mm -hmm. challenging and it was trying, but I learned a lot from that experience. And what we're trying to do essentially was we're trying to rethink productivity. Like how do you rethink how people manage their lives um, essentially from a high level? And this was the project that we started out um, because of, you know, based on user feedback. We were in Paris for um, something called Compass Connect. Which is this big um, uh, roadshow essentially that you know we go to yearly to go demo new features, talk to our customers, connect with our corporate customers, and while we're there, we just you know we're trying to show them new stuff, and the users were like, "This is a lot." Like you know, it's great that you're working on new things, but like, what about all the old things? I still have to manage. Like I still have to go to all these different uh, places to figure out like where all my stuff is because the Microsoft ecosystem is so huge. So the problem was like, okay, you have so many different apps, you have so many different views, so many different paths to how you could potentially organize yourself. How do we create like a view that potentially accumulates all of that data, gives you like a single place to go? And that was a challenge, right? Um, but also we saw a lot of value in potentially thinking about that idea. Um, so that's what we did. Um, you know, I, it was very interesting, like how the project kicked off how we're able to get funding, you know, pitching to essentially, it was like pitching to investors, but like we were able to get internal funding and backing mm -hmm. for the project. And that was a really, really great, um, you know, experience for me. 
Mm-hmm. How did you yeah. pitch it internally? How did you mm-hmm. how did you make people excited about the product? Did you came yeah. in with the insight that you were gathering at the conference where you're saying like, hey guys, like there's a thing I learned or we learned, uh, we should do something about it, created like mm-hmm. a, a visual teaser or like what was your approach towards bringing people in an organization behind you or behind mm-hmm. the team that uh, you had? How, how did you approach it? Yeah, so... Um, First, it wasn't like a one-man solo job. Like I had a very, very strategic uh, PM leader. She was fantastic, has a lot of experience, and also like a very a, a group of people that already were involved in kind of the ideation and really believed in the idea. Um, so that made my life easier in terms of like you know aligning. There wasn't like an, a lot of internal alignment within the team that was actually building it. So we're all aligned. So that was the first thing. Um, but I think like just to paint the picture a bit better, um, just in terms of like how Microsoft functioned at the time. Microsoft is a is a great organization, very well you know oiled and positioned to uh, lead initiatives. Um, but you know, as with every big organization, you know there is some hesitation around like innovation, especially around like places where you might not be familiar with, right? So there's a lot of like this is our bread and butter. Let us work on improving this thing as opposed to going to go, you know, think about stuff a different way. So there was a lot of like internal hesitation, I would say, um, around like, you know, a project like this. But I think one thing that, you know, was great at Microsoft was, you know, every, I think every quarter we would have these uh, fixed hack learn weeks. So they call it fixed hack learn because you could either decide to fix something within the project, hack a new thing, so build something brand new or take out the time to learn. So it was a full week of just, you have one week, go figure out what you want to do. So, you know, some people would build out teams, you know, bring people together, work on like projects, and then you would have a prize or like, you know, they would vote on like, you know, the best project. So that was a really fun thing. But those kinds of, um, you know, innovative uh, allowances really gave us the time to think about a project like this. So it was in one of those fixed hack learn weeks that we actually took out the time from work and said, hey, let's tackle this small problem. So we we kind of built out, we did like a sprint for a week, you know, thought about the problem that we heard in Paris and um, brought in people like experts, people that had, you know, thought about this space in the past. Mm-hmm. And then we built out at the end, we had a prototype. And it was with that very visual prototype. And we also created like a story around it. Like, you know, what is the story behind this? Uh, so there was a lot of storytelling elements around like, okay, what is the function of this, this product? Or what are we trying to get out of this? So with that prototype and the story, um, we essentially just started to socialize it. Um, so essentially we went to, you know, a big forum where you know, employees, it's kind of like a, a big Outlook meeting. We kind of showed, you know, this is what we came up with. Um, it wasn't a very, very forceful pitch. It wasn't like, you know, Hey, we, we, this is super important. This is high priority. Obviously you're trying to balance this against all the other priorities in the company, but we created a story that was, I feel it was compelling enough, uh, to get people on board. So, you know, everyone we showed because of just the amount of effort and the time we took people we showed were like, you know, this is something I really want to have. I wish I had this. Right. And I think you want to get people to that point with the stories that you tell, you know, I need to have this. And I think slowly but surely, you know, obviously people started to get in line and say, hey, like, this is something that we should explore. At least we should at least give some time to explore. Um, so it was a lot of like going to meetings, presenting, uh, getting questions. Also a lot of, 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 you know, hard work in terms of the story that we wanted to tell too as well. I think it's a powerful story, I think. And it's actually a, a topic that came up uh, multiple times in the podcast. One of my, one of my favorite mm-hmm. themes 
the area of incubation and how designers can can be uh, helping there. And um, I think your story outlines that you know really well. Uh, there was um, um, one other episode I want to point out here, episode twenty five with Shiva Jaini. He was working at Google for a very long time. He incubated together with a team the idea of YouTube Kids, which is then also went into production. It's now a major piece of of YouTube because they saw uh, from interviewing parents that. Um, uh, the way YouTube was consumed by kids is not perfect mm. for kids, right? And I think, yep. so basically they did a story, they did a video prototype and just told the story and it got funding, mm. similar to your story. Yes. I think one of the powers of designers is, is, is to tell a story, is to visualize the abstract, is to visualize the theory, the theory and yes. uh, emotionalize it um, for people and making it like this one factor that you, you were pointing out that, that you know, making it emotional for people and it, it feels real even though it's not real. And then yeah. that creates a, a set of, a, a, a place for a discussion, yeah? And this vision that doesn't have to be exactly what it's going to turn out in the end, but at least it takes it from a posted and a theoretical discussion into an image that people can use as a baseline for discussion. Then you can use this image to say like, yeah, I, uh, you know, I see it a little bit different, right? You can use it as a canvas for feedback. And I think that's so powerful about, I think your story and, and many others where, you know, designers are involved in incubating these new ideas. And uh, uh, this is just uh, uh, also just something I would like to share with the audience that, you know, if you in an organization, you can be involved in these hackathons or uh, in incubating new ideas, I think, if designers position themselves well in this product, they can be a force of help and and, and support. So, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Just to add one more thought, I'm uh, I recently read the book uh, The Thousand Brains. I don't know if you know that book. Uh, sort of like how the mind is structured, how the brain works, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, how computers are working is is very different, right? And I think it's sort of like, I think you're pointing out the, the topic that, you know, files are structured everywhere. You know, I think one of the key challenges is that I think computers work very different to how the brain works. Yeah. yeah? So uh, like the, the brain works with reference frames and actually has, mm -hmm. you know, things located at multiple uh, places. For example, the name of your dog uh, is, for example, located at multiple locations in your, in your brain, whereas you know, computer, you always have like one way where you kind of store it. And uh, so that's a big problem. Like, how can you make that more aligned? And I think that's, I think where people talk about true AI, um, where actually uh, they're trying to figure out basically how um, you can basically um, have AIs be less specialized on certain things and be sort of like f uh, focused on sort of machine learning and, and sort of like doing a certain task, but actually... Uh, works more similar to the brain where, you know, it could potentially help you. And I think, I think that's just maybe a, an outline about like how a topic like Microsoft space could even evolve into the future. But I think it was already super interesting. So basically you had some great years at Microsoft. Then I think already during that time, I think you got very passionate about, um, highlighting people that are unrepresented in the design community and mentor them. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think recently you found actually a more, actually a formal organization for that. But maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, that journey was uh, quite interesting, like how I started to mentor people. Obviously, I'm, I have a, a diff very different background from, you know, what is typically, what you typically see in the tech space. Um, you know, being a Black person, being African, 
those came with its own challenges. Um, you know, and and you know, when I look back at people at home, people at home are often looking for people that look like them that they can relate to, right? Like they want to people. You know, there are a lot of role models everywhere, but like a person is more likely to relate to someone that looks like them, you know, that has very similar experiences. Mm-hmm. So for me, like mentorship was a journey for me because I would often assume that, hey, like whatever I want to share, like I'm pretty sure there's someone out there already sharing it. So what's the point of of sharing? Like I, I'm, an, I'm also a bit, you know, introverted and I like to keep to myself. So I was like, you know, what if people judge me? What if, you know, I don't know what I'm saying? And what if, you know, just the imposter syndrome of being in these spaces? Um, so I, I, for a while, I hesitated on, on actually making any moves around like publicly mentoring people, but people will reach out to me every once in a while and I'd respond to them and kind of help point them in the right direction. And, you know, after a couple of years of doing that, like I started to see a lot of positive impact, like a person would message me out of nowhere and say, Hey, like, you know, four years ago, you responded to my message, my LinkedIn message or my Twitter message. And, you know, right now I'm at Google. Um, and I couldn't have done that because of you. Or someone would say, you know, years ago, I listened to you speak ex- uh, somewhere and, you know, you mentioned this and this is how I applied it and this is where I am. And I started to realize that, like, some of the things that I take for granted are actually having impact on people's lives. And, you know, I, I thought mm-hmm. about, okay, like, what if I could scale this up? What if I could, you know, maybe take this from a place of it being like a one-on-one thing to maybe, you know, trying to reach more people, trying to maybe potentially get more funding in the future to give these people more opportunities to as well and connect them to employers. What if we could do more with this? Um, so that's where the idea for Leads by Design came from. But I, before then, I had been mentoring people in some capacity since almost 2017. Um, but Leads by Design was a formalization of that. There was a step for me to actually say, hey, like, I feel like maybe this could have more impact if I formalized it and if I decided to get more help. Because, you know, um, that's also something that I struggle with is kind of asking for help. Um, you know, like I've always done things by myself. Um, the year before I did Leads by Design, I put out like a tweet and I said, you know, I'm going to offer mentorship for free. And I had almost, you know, 500 people apply to be mentored. And I had these one-on-one sessions with at least 100 people, um, you know, and a lot of those people eventually ended up getting jobs, relocating out of Nigeria, moving to new jobs, getting promoted. Um, and that was really what spurred me into action and saying, hey, like, what if we actually formalize this? What if I could scale this up? And that's when I said, OK, I need to organize it a bit better. I need to get help. Um, obviously, I'm juggling a lot of things, so it doesn't make sense to um, just try to do this by myself. And, you know, the idea and the mission behind Leads by Design is essentially uh, I want to create I want to help to diversify the face of design. Um, design is already a very empathetic discipline. Um, and I know that there's a lot of potential and a lot of growth opportunities within the design space. Um, but often, uh, you know, like I go into spaces and I'm the only person that looks like me there. I'm the only person that people can try to relate to, like people that look like me. So what I'm trying to do is to get more people like me into design to show them what's possible, right? To show them that, hey, like you could come into this space and you could thrive, you know, and that's what I'm really trying to do. It's all about like representation. And it's about showing people like, hey, like, there's a possible path in design. And also, I think there's also an element of, you know, I didn't go to a you know, top Ivy League school. Um, I didn't have a traditional design education, right? Like I, I did have some, some adjacent education around design, but like it wasn't a direct, um, you know, hey, like, you know, good school for HCI or product design. 
um, but I was still able to make something out of it. Um, so it's showing people that, hey, like if you're able to take certain risks, you know, the risk we talked about, like, you know, saying yes, um, you know, those are some of the things that you could you could do the saying yes, putting yourself you know, in front of, uh, you know, other people that could potentially appreciate your work, finding ways to elevate your work and to tell your story. Very, very simple things that a lot of people will take for granted. Like you could make a tremendous change in your career. So that's what I'm trying to do with Leads by Design. Oh, yeah, I think that's a, a powerful story. And uh, mm -hmm. I think it's it's so great that you started this. Um, mm -hmm. If you would think about diversity and inclusion in design, mm -hmm. I think you already mentioned there's tremendous opportunity. And I totally agree to that. If you would mm -hmm. think about these organizations or the design industry in general, what do you think are the biggest roadblockers? What do you think are the biggest challenges in terms of moving this forward substantially? And what would be your advice? So that's the second part of the question. What would be your advice for designers uh, uh, that are maybe not the people that you're directly trying to help, but maybe the people that are in the environment and could also make a positive contribution helping that in that transformation? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good question. I think... You know, like what I see in the industry and, you know, my perspective has changed over time. Um, but I think like when I first got into the industry, I was ignorant about a lot of things. So for me, I was in this new space and I wasn't really thinking about like diversity or like the, the fact that I, I might be like the only uh, person in the room or like, you know, what that means in terms of like how much leverage and how much, um, you know, how much my opinions can be taken into account. So I was just doing things. I, my mindset was, hey, like I'm here to be the best I can possibly be. I'm here to work. Um, I don't really want to think about a lot of those things. Um, but I think my perspective started to change and shift, um, you know, I think aligned to kind of how the, the environment in the U.S. kind of uh, evolved. Um, if you think about like some of the protests and some of the unfortunate events in the U.S. that, you know, has led to a lot of discussion around politics and just you know, like diversity and inclusion. Um, those were also having an impactful, um, you know, moments on me too as well. I was also impacted by a lot of those movements and a lot of those things. And even at work too, it spurred a lot of conversation, right? Like it spurred a lot of conversation around like, you know, why these things were happening in society and how companies like Microsoft and Netflix um, could help to change those narratives. Um, and during some of those conversations, um, you know, I would hear some of my leaders at the time say, um, you know, the reason why we don't have enough um, diverse talent is because the uh, pipeline is broken. You know, I don't know if you've heard that phrase, but it's one that's often cited where we don't really have, there are not enough um, Black designers, right? Like there are not enough people that are going to school uh, for design that are Black or that are Asian or that are, you know, a certain demographic. And that's why it's not really translating in how much how many people we hire. Um, so that is often, you know, some of the reasons you might hear that a place isn't diverse enough. But like, you know, I think that is something that we're starting to find out isn't necessarily right because, uh, you know, there are a lot of designers, but like the way that we recruit, uh, the way that we appeal to those designers, some of them might not be comfortable applying to bigger companies because they feel like they might be rejected. So you never get them actually in the pipeline. It's not that the pipeline is broken. Is that like you're not even getting them in the pipeline or maybe some of them are getting in, but like we have ways that aren't necessarily supporting them to get through that pipeline. You don't really have the support to get through. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of systemic problems uh, with just how we hire and recruit and appeal to these communities. 
um, that I think that we can change and evolve, you know, so like in terms of like outreach, like, you know, maybe instead of expecting uh, these people to even know like about design and what the opportunities are, can we as companies invest more in education, right? Like, can we invest more in outreach? Can we go to these campuses um, to tell these people about what's possible, right? Like, um, you know, they're like for me, like I really didn't have any clue that, you know, design was actually um, something that you could do as a career, right? Like, and, and I'm sure there are a lot of people like me and that's why I spend a lot of time in Twitter spaces, in IG lives, just sharing like, hey, there's a potential journey here. Like you could actually do this as a career. So I feel like there's a lot of work to do around outreach. There's a lot of work to do around education. And the companies that, if you're complaining about the pipeline, it's not the it's not the, the people, the underrepresented people's, um, you know, responsibility to fix that pipeline. It is the companies that are going to benefit billions, um, you know, potentially um, from fixing that pipeline that should be taking the charge on that, right? Like if you have a more diverse product or a more diverse product team, you're going to have a, a product that works better for a greater population, yeah. right? Like it's a, it's a competitive advantage for you to have a product team that is diverse, for you to have mm -hmm. a product that is built by people that come from diverse backgrounds right so it's not a bad thing right so it should we should look at it as just any other investment right like we're paying this forward so that we can reap the benefits later it's an economic decision as much as it is a um you know social justice decision right like there's a win-win for these companies too as well so i feel like you know the problems that i see is you know obviously the citation that the pipeline is broken i don't think the pipeline is broken i think we just have to be a bit more deliberate and intentional about how we recruit people into that pipeline and also giving them the support to get through that pipeline and to actually get to an offer and then also um you know like there's a lot of work um that we need to do in terms of of, of trust building trust right because there's a lot of hesitation around you know it's one thing to get someone into into tech, it's another thing to keep them there, right? So a person might get into tech and because of all the negative experiences they would face, they just kind of give up and say, hey, like I'm, I'm, I'm gonna try something else, right? Um, so there is, there's, it's one thing to get them in through the pipeline, but how do we actually foster a culture that makes sure that these people thrive, right? It's through training, it's mm -hmm. through support, it's through having these tough conversations, it's through allyship, right? There are a lot of things that we could do internally to do that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I have to say, I have to say, I think you're pointing out a, a couple of very important topics. I think mm -hmm. to just point out one thing that I really like is that mm -hmm. you were saying it is as much a social justice topic as it is a business investment yes. and i think this is yeah. clever to say because mm -hmm. just to give you a similarity sustainability how do you get people to invest in sustainability is usually not saying that you invest in sustainability but you invest into things that are coming and sustainability comes as a byproduct to it yes. <clears throat> and this is how you get attention it's actually the same way how you sell design You don't sell design by saying it looks more pretty. You're selling design, but what the audience wants to hear and what they are kind of like listening to. So you you would say, well, this design improves our product KPIs, whatever these product KPIs. And for example, we could generate more. Uh, we can have people staying um, long in our application by creating more uh, utility uh, value to it, uh, etc. Right. So you're trying to frame the your you ask around into trying to find it with the match of what like what the person that you're talking trying to convince about cares most right i mean that's sort of like sales yes. one-on-one right yes. and uh, 
and I think so you 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 did something very clever where you were saying you know that's sort of like how you how you also uh, basically want people to look into that so basically it's a strategic decision to hire more diverse uh, mm -hmm. set of people you know because you're gonna have a better match between your internal team and your customers yeah yes. so that's number one you want that you know there's a strong match that this is kind of an obvious business advantage like a competitive advantage like you say and the other thing is yes. that you may come up with more innovative ideas because you have a more diverse group of people that's the nature of innovation yes. comes from friction and, and 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 different points of views and, and different backgrounds right exactly. so really really like that you know i was um listening to a, a talk recently from uh, an architect who is trying to um try to make buildings more sustainable but he's not talking about sustainability when he talks to his clients um when he talks about making the building more durable uh of more lighter materials <laughs> like all of these different things and it's by that fostering sustainability and i think taking that same approach you know instead of like trying to hammer it in with you know uh, uh, these maybe more soft arguments but just like looking at what the, your audience is trying to convince or what the organization tries what are, what are they listening to and using these open ears and topics basically as a gateway yes exactly that's spot on i think that that's 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 so amazing that you push this forward um mm -hmm. um talking a little bit about netflix um so you have been at netflix now for uh some time and I think the entertainment space, I think, is is interesting. Um, also, from a, a technology standpoint and a customer behavior standpoint, there's um, the question is like, what is entertainment, first of all? And there are so many different types of uh, entertainment. And I think we have been going away from the radio and the television to, you know, a wide range of different solutions where people consume vertical video content some consume like for a short amount of time it became very snackable long periods uh, of time with more horizontal content um, and it's you know happening more on the go it's became much more integrated in our in our life but i would be super interested about what if what have you learned at netflix so far when it comes to how design can foster innovation in the entertainment industry um, if I would frame it as large as that, um, and what is the role of design within within that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Netflix has definitely been a, a, a an eye opening like time for me, um, mostly because I think it's a very very different culture. So I think the company itself is so different and so unique um, that it's like you're in a very very different space. At least moving from Microsoft to Netflix was you know, a very huge uh, shift for me. And I think mm -hmm. it was also kind of what I was looking for um, because, you know, I had worked on this, you know, a couple of growth minded or, um, you know, innovation projects at Microsoft. And I was like, okay, this is kind of the kind of work I want to keep doing. Mm -hmm. um, so moving into Netflix kind of gave me the freedom to kind of seek out those kinds of, of, of work uh, internally. Um, but I think like um, to your question, um, the role of design is essentially, I think, the role of design anywhere. The design essentially creates a compelling story um, that is inspiring, um, and I think that can rally people around an idea. Um, but I think design also at Netflix is powerful because, um, you know, one thing that Netflix has always had, um, which was a conscious investment, was, you know, a, a an emphasis on technology, right? Like, so Netflix is an entertainment company 
but with a huge emphasis on technology, right? Like if you look at the history of Netflix, it has been the amount of investment they've made in technology and just making sure that they are, you know, trendsetters, they're ahead of the game in terms of like, you know, what is the best way to stream? What is the best way to make sure that we have like, you know, very lossless transmission? What is the best way to, um, you know, engage people to try out things quickly, A-B testing, all of that, like all of those investments, you know, have kind of paid off in terms of, you know, just how much market like Netflix has been able to capture and dominate over the past couple of years. So like design's role in that is essentially like, you know, creating, I think, the, the, the story behind it, right? Like, why are we going after these things? What, why is it important to the customer? But also to make sure that we are creating the best in class experience, a, an experience that is essentially, um, you know, leading in terms of, you know, competitors. So I think like, you know, design's role is, is very important at Netflix, right? Like there's a, there's a huge emphasis on design. Um, but also I think like the thing I found at Netflix is that there's also a, a lot of power that is given to design too as well. Um, designers at Netflix have a lot of, um, you know, just because of the culture and the way it's been set up, we have a lot of, I would say, power to drive um, the outcomes of the product, right? There's a lot of power given to us. There's a lot of freedom given to us to really take liberty and say, hey, like, if you see a problem, you know, you have the ability to look at that problem gather insights and go after the problem and try to solve it. And I think this is um, what I've seen across the board at Netflix, not just in design. Um, so people are empowered to really, really uh, take res uh, fr uh, responsibility and have the freedom to go against like goals that ladder up to the broader organizational um, objectives. Um, so, uh, you know, you know, there isn't like a special role for design, but I would say like design definitely has a voice at Netflix. And I'm sure you could tell from, you know, the way that the experience has evolved over the years. Um, you know, it, it has a voice. Um, I think at Microsoft and some other bigger companies, there was a time when like you know, design kind of had to prove value and kind of, you know, solicit to be at the table and then, you know, kind of have to wait to be invited. But I think at least from what I can tell from looking at the history of Netflix, I've only been there for, you know, a year plus. But I think there has always been an understanding in, you know, we need to invest in technology and technology is what's going to give us the edge. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's what, that's one of the strong points of Netflix right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th yeah. I think um, totally, uh, totally agree. And I think you could always see it also from the, the digital experience. I think, uh, I think mm -hmm. that that was, you know, very early on, I think always, you know, something that stood out uh, to Netflix. Uh, Looking at uh, Netflix, I think that we also, before the episode recording, we talked about this uh, shortly. There's a certain aspect about the Netflix culture, which is maybe different to how other organizations work. And it really emphasizes the freedom of making our decisions. But maybe you can just elaborate a little bit on that. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, Netflix has like an infamous uh, culture memo that details you know, kind of how the, the company functions internally. And, um, you know, when I was about to join Netflix, you know, I did a lot of research on this culture memo and I was, I was terrified and excited at the same time because I was terrified because, you know, I've never really been in a space where like you have so much freedom, um, but also like in a space where like you're solely responsible for the actions you take. Like it's, it's kind of like a balance of like, oh, you have the freedom, you can make decisions, you can move quick. Um, to an extent, you have power as an IC. If you're an IC, 
you actually have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of freedom given to you to drive initiatives to, you know, come up with things. And I think one huge part of the culture is also trust you as well. The company tries to hire the best people and puts a lot of trust in them, right? Like there's a lot of like, hey, like we trust you to make the best decisions that are going to be in the interest of the company. Um, and that's a lot, that's something that, you know, is missing from a lot of organizations, right? Like you get into a company and, you know, the way they treat you is like, there's always kind of that's, you know, it's not, it's not a full um, transparent uh, relationship, right? Like there's kind of like a, uh, always a hint of suspicion from both sides, right? Like you're not really sure what the company's think, thinking and the company is kind of apprehensive of all your moves. So like, there's a lot of like friction that that could potentially create, but at Netflix, it's like, you know, Netflix has a, a very um, powerful culture where, you know, feedback is solicited. Like people can walk up to you and give you feedback directly, right? Like, and tell you, hey, like you're doing this great, but like, maybe you should consider this. There's a lot of openness. There's a lot of transparency. Um, and also just like, you know, just the freedom, right? Like I talked about um, expenses um, being one of the things that's highlighted in the memo uh, where like, you know, to a certain extent, um, you know, to a certain spend amount at Netflix, um, you don't really have to get like approval, right? Like they depend on you to make the best decisions in the interest of Netflix. You could potentially get audited. And if, you, if you're doing something wrong, um, that would come to light. But like in most cases, it's like, we trust you to make the best decision. We trust that you're going to, um, you know, only spend money on the things that bring value to Netflix. Mm -hmm. So to a certain amount, you actually don't have to get approval. Um, you don't have to go ask a manager, can I invest in this course? Or can I buy this book? Or can I buy this thing that's going to help me in this design sprint? You can go ahead and do it, right? Like there's, it's kind of, your manager is going to just going to tell you, well, think about culture, freedom and responsibility. Decide if it's something that you need. And if it is, then go ahead, right? as long as you can justify it. Um, so that's a very, very different culture from what I, I was used to um, in the past. And I think it's it's very, very different and unique um, in terms of just tech, tech companies too as well. So there are also certain aspects of the culture, you know, feedback, like I mentioned too as well, is, is one that is really, really celebrated and people are very eager to hear mm -hmm. because we believe that feedback is the bedrock of like improvement, um, you know, freedom and responsibility. I talked about that, but like, I think the biggest thing is just like that I experienced was like, there's a lot of trust that is placed in employees. And that is something that can really be empowering, right? Like imagine if you're going into a room, knowing that like your manager has your back, knowing that like you, you know, you, you have the trust of the company behind you, um, right? Like that you can make decisions. And if you're wrong, like, it's not like if you make a bad move, you get tossed out, right? There is a lot of understanding, right? Like we're, we're moving fast. We're taking big risks. Sometimes we might be right. Sometimes we might be wrong. Um, but there's a lot of understanding. And I think a lot of grace in those uh, spaces. But I think the caveat, the thing that makes me or made me a bit um, hesitant or like, you know, really scared was like, if you read the culture memo, it talks about like hiring only A players, right? Like they're trying to hire, they're, they're, they're not a family, but they're a sports team, right? Like in a sports team, only the top players get to play, right? Like only the people that have proven themselves, the people that have a good record, um, you know, and if you're not meeting those demands, you know, you're going to get let go, get let go of, right? So it's also the balance of like, there's a lot of trust placed in you, but the trust is placed in you because we believe that you're very competent. And we believe that we've hired the best person for this job. Um, so that's kind of like, it's a lot of pressure. But I do appreciate like a lot of the freedom, a lot of the um, the trust that's placed in the employees.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's yep. uh, it's it's powerful, and I think as you said, it's it's very different to how most organizations are structured, and mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be interesting if more organizations gonna, and you know what you know if there's going to be uh, some kind of data that kind of going to show in a few years what mm-hmm. you know it it uh, it does for organization, and maybe more organizations going to pick it up. Um, yep. And uh, that a- that providing people with that, or giving people that agency, I think it's powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. uh, as I said also before the recording, it puts some pressure on the HR side for yes. sure to yes. hire the right yes. people to actually you know take that responsibility. Just as yeah. a last question, because I know we are we're getting a little bit over time. And as a last mm-hmm. question, if you think about the entertainment space and how it's going to move forward. What excites you as a designer most when you think about uh, what this space gonna allow you to do in in, in the next years, and how, what kind of like new ideas kind of inspire you yeah. for desi- specifically looking at maybe what designers can do in the space? Yeah, so I feel like we are uh, in the golden age of entertainment, and hopefully, like it keep, keeps getting better and more optimized and. Um, but I feel like we're in a very good time, right? Like there's a lot of choice on the market. There's a lot of comp- competition. There's a lot of, you know, really, really great quality content that is being put out. And I think that, you know, and not just the quality, but the volume, right? Like there are a lot of streaming options. There's yeah. a lot of ways that you can consume entertainment, um, you know, and not just like with, with streaming, but with games and all these other forms of media. And I feel like that comes with, you know, that volume comes with a challenge, a new challenge for design and a new challenge for uh, technology, which is how do you, um, you know, streamline all of that into um, content that feels personal to me, right? I think that that is going to be the next challenge, which is, okay, we have a lot of these options, but I think at some point as human beings, that's going to get overwhelming, right? Um, um, and I feel like, you know, the future of, of entertainment is, is personal. It's personalized. It is tailored. Um, you know, um, I think Netflix is in a position to really, really drive a lot of innovation in this space. Um, you know, there's, there is a lot of opportunity here to really dial in on, okay, like, who is this person? Um, you know, how can I create like a feed that is personal to them? How can I suggest things that, you know, I know that they are going to be interested in? I think I know Netflix has done a lot of work in this space with, you know, their personalization algorithms and all the other things they've tried in the past. Um, So I feel like the next challenge is going to be like, how do you get, you know, all of these options? How do I figure out like a way to navigate them? How do you make it easier for me to navigate all the options I'm presented with? Um, Because the volume is is definitely going to be, it's a great thing for the consumer. Like you have options, um, but, you know, too many options is kind of where how we landed on TV, right? Like you had thousands of channels and deciding what to watch was hard. Um, and I think we're kind of kind of gets into that point with with streaming too as well. And I think the challenge for design is gonna be um, how do we lean to our superpowers of of understanding the user, of empathizing with the user, of really getting to know who the user is and and use that as a baseline and a basis to design experience is that really, really, really put the person at the center, right? Like, you know, I think like we've kind of steered towards a model where the content is the center, right? Like we're focusing on the content and how we deliver the content. And I think as designers, we have to pull that conversation back and say, okay, like um, how do we refocus the user, the person, the individual in this equation? And how do we create content around them as opposed to content for them? Mm-hmm. 
And I think I totally agree. And what's interesting about it, it's really uh, it's really an area of work where technology and design really have to you know work together. You talked about personalization, yes. the algorithms, right, and the technology, mm-hmm. and the, like the all the backend innovation that needs to happen there in order to make these clever decisions. There's this meme that you maybe have seen that you know fifty percent of the time you spend on like deciding which movies. Uh, to, to to watch and maybe 50% like you're actually <laughs> watching the movie. Yeah. That sometimes like, you know, especially in a group, then it can be very difficult to make like a, a decision, right? And I think it yeah. has been become way better than, you know, TV, like you said. Yeah. Uh, you know, what kind of properties in a movie do you mm-hmm. analyze and what kind of algorithmic decision do you make based out of that? And what kind of assumptions you make about a person, right? Mm-hmm. Is this... Is the technology really making recommendations that are similar to how people would structure their their interests or or basically yeah. is the technology and sort of like the way you collect the data and sort of like try to make assumptions about the person actually matching with the person, right? And the interests of the person. And I think that's a yeah. that's a that's a design challenge and a, and, a, and, a, and a psychology challenge. Um, but it's also a technology challenge, so it's it's yeah, it's super interesting and a uh, yeah. lot of opportunities for designers to make impact on again uh, the, the business. And um, yeah, so Tesli, thank you so much for taking the time. We've been going a little bit over time here, um, but I appreciate the time, and I would just like to thank you on behalf of the audience for sharing all of these you know great insights. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. All right, there was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up and let me know in the comments about your thoughts and biggest learnings from the episode. I'm always super curious about that. You can also tag me in a post about your biggest takeaway and share your insights with others to pass on your learnings. If the episode provided you a lot of value, make sure to follow, subscribe and share it with friends and colleagues so they also have the chance to learn and grow. Until next time, cheers.